if you have your Bibles, please open up to Genesis 11. Uh, we're going to camp out verses 1 through 9. You have been working through a series called The Story of the World. It's covering Genesis 1 through 12. So we're nearing the end. These cha 12 chapters in the Bible, these first 12 chapters, I did the math, I got a calculator. It actually makes up only 1% of the entire Bible. But these 12 chapters, if y'all already been looking at it, are foundational to the story of God's love and redemption that unfolds over the next 1178 chapters of 1189 and is still being written today. The story of God's love and redemption. So far, this is where you've been. God created the cosmos. He created the universe and everything that's in it. And then he made man and woman to, in his image, to be with him forever. Put him in a garden, said, this is the way it's going to be forever, is you and me in a relationship. But God is both relational and holy, and so God gave them a choice. And with that choice, they rebelled, and they were separated from his presence. So instead of things getting better, things actually got worse. The first family committed the first murder. We see this in Genesis chapter 4, when Cain killed Abel. But Seth was born, and we see at the very end of chapter 4, we get a glimmer of hope, where the last verse in that chapter says, at that time, people began to call upon the name of the Lord. So that's the first four chapters. And then you get to chapter 5. And if you've ever read through the Bible, I don't know exactly how you approach it, but for me, I have a tendency to skip over the genealogies. So-and-so begat so-and-so, and so-and-so begat so-and-so. Uh, but chapter 5 is a pretty cool chapter. So it's all just people being born in this particular chapter. I believe that even in this chapter, God is laying a foundation. And chapter 5 may be giving us a clue about what is to come. So this is just pretty cool when you think about these names that are listed out in this chapter. And I'll read a few of the verses. Genesis 5, 3, when Adam had lived 130 years, he had a son and he named him Seth. Verse 6, when Seth had lived 105 years, he became the father of Enosh. Enosh had lived 90 years, he became the father of Canaan. And Canaan became the father of Malayal. Malayal became the father of Jared. And Jared, Enoch, Enoch, Methuselah, oldest guy, recorded uh, oldest guy in the Bible. Methuselah had Lamech. And then when Lamech had lived 182 years, he had a son, Noah. So you start with Seth and you get to Noah. Each of those names have meanings. Now, I don't pretend to know Hebrew, but I read guys who do. And I looked up these names in a Bible dictionary, some Bible dictionaries, and this is what these names mean. This is so cool. This, we're not even in our text yet, but I just got to share this. Adam means man. Seth means appointed. Enos means mortal man or sick. Canaan means by buyer or owner. Malayo means God shines forth. Jared means coming down. Enoch means dedicated. Methuselah means he has sent his death. Lamech means poor or made low, and Noah means rest and comfort. So if you take those names in the order in which they're given, in the order in which people were born, and you add a few prepositions, this is what you get. Man was appointed mortality, which he bought. God shined forth and came down, dedicating his death to send to the poor and lowly rest and comfort. Pretty cool. So I think God, even then, 
in Genesis chapter 5 with all of these names. Don't skip the genealogies, at least in Genesis chapter 5. He's given us a clue about what's to come. Genesis 1 through 12 is foundational to the rest of the Bible. But for now, in the text that we've been in, mankind couldn't escape sin. And in chapter 6, things got worse. This is what y'all looked at last week. And God started over with Noah and his family. And then you get to chapter 10. Noah's three sons had three kids who had lots of kids with lots of languages and clans and nations. And then you get to the last verse, verse 32. And from these sons, the nations spread abroad on the earth after the flood. So we can all trace back our genealogy to Adam and Eve, but we can also all trace back our genealogy to one of these three sons of Noah. And then you get to our text this morning. So Genesis 11, 1 through 9, if you've got your Bibles, it would be helpful to keep them open. If not, we have the text on the screen. Now the whole earth had one language and the same words. All right, let's think for a minute. You might be thinking, I, I thought you just read in Genesis chapter 10 that there was uh, lots of languages and clans and nations. So that's true. Uh, that was Genesis chapter 10, and now we're in Genesis chapter 11, which there is just one language. And what you have is, this is a going back. So Genesis chapter 11 actually precedes. This is the story of how we got Genesis chapter 10 in these 70 nations that we see in chapter 10. Genesis 11 is explaining that. And I think there's a reason that we see the story here right before you're going to get into the text next week for Genesis chapter 12 but we'll leave that for next week. So Genesis chapter 11 is simply giving us the backstory to chapter 10. And as people migrated, this is verse 2 from the east, they found the plain in the land of Shinar, which is the Hebrew name for Babylonia, and is located in what is now present-day Iraq, and settled there. And they said to one another, Come, let us make bricks and burn them thoroughly. And they had brick for stone and uh, bitumen for mortar. And then verse 4, then they said, Come, let us build ourselves a city and a tower with its top in the heavens. So that phrase, the key word is ourselves. Let us build for ourselves a city. And let us make a name for ourselves. And there we see ourselves again. Lest we disperse over the face of the whole earth. And the Lord came down to see the city and the tower which the children of man had built. And the Lord said, Behold, they are one people, and they have all have one language. And this is only the beginning of what they will do. And nothing that they propose to do will now be impossible for them. Come, let us go down. And this is possibly the Trinity. And they are confused their language so that they may not understand one another's speech. So the Lord dispersed from there over the face of all the earth dispersed them from there from over the face of all the earth, and they left off building the city. Therefore, its name was called Babel, because there the Lord confused the language of all the earth, and from there the Lord dispersed them over the face of all the earth. So I want to mention a few things about this text before we get to where we're going this morning. Uh, one is that it's real clear, if you think back from Genesis chapter 3, that Mankind's not getting any better. If anything, mankind's getting worse. Sin first leads to man and woman being expelled from a garden. 
Then they're wiped out with the flood, and then now they're sent out of the city. Number two is, this is not a make-believe fable. So Noah's Ark wasn't a fable. Practically every story, every culture in the world has a story of a flood. It's really interesting. It's like, well, it's the flood just mentioned in the Hebrew Bible and in Christianity. No, you can just about go to any civilization in the world and they'll have some story of the flood. So there's great evidence of the flood, including Babylon. And so, which this particular story, there's a possibility some scholars think that this was handed down from Noah's grandson, Nimrod, who's mentioned in Genesis 10, and we'll look at him in a minute, who the first century historian Josephus said, built the tower in defiance against God to escape another possible flood. So you have Noah's grandson that some say went to build this tower in order to escape the flood. I guess he hadn't seen a rainbow in a while. It felt like there needed to be a tower. So Noah's Ark wasn't a fable. Every culture has it, and neither was this tower. Scientists don't know uh, why we speak over 7,000 different languages. I've looked it up online and tried to look at different resources. No one come to, can come to an agreement on why the world, world today has 7,000 different languages. One guess is that it must be distance spread over geography over time. Well, if that's the case, here's a clear indication right here in Genesis 11 of a citywide event that created distance that led to 70 people groups being dispersed over all the face of the earth. The third thing from the text is that, that I wanted to mention is that God coming to the earth wasn't just in the New Testament. You see here that it says the Lord came down to see the city and the tower. Now, I'm not 100% sure if this was a physical and dwelling where the Lord comes down. But it is clear, you'll see this as you read through the Old Testament. There's a handful of times, multiple times, maybe five to ten times, where the Lord actually comes down some of those times in physical form to be with the people. And many think it's a, a Christophany, it's a foretelling of the coming of Jesus Christ and him really is coming down to earth to be with us. So maybe that's what's happening here. And then the fourth thing is, God wasn't scared or nervous about what mankind might be able to do. So if you look back in verse 6, it says, The Lord said, Behold, they are one people, and they all have one language. And this is the only the beginning of what they will do. So a couple of things about this. One is, God is angry, I believe, out of holiness and love about what mankind might actually do to themselves the more corrupt they so God sees this coming together. He sees possibly evil being plotted, which it definitely is because they are rebelling against God. And he says, I've got to come down and I've got to take care of the situation. Because out of his anger against evil and his love for his people, he wants to intervene. So I believe that's one thing that's happening here. But I don't believe that God was fearful of what humankind uh, might do, like that there might be some kind of takeover of heaven. It's possible that when God says, behold, there's nothing impossible that they will be able to do, that really, he was just simply laughing at them and laughing at the power in which they thought they had. It reminds me of Psalms chapter 2, where he says, why do the nations, nations rage and the peoples plot in vain? The kings of the earth set themselves and the rulers take counsel together against the Lord and against his anointed, saying, let us burst 
their minds apart and cast away their cords from us. He who sits in the heavens laughs. The Lord holds them in derision. So I think this is possibly what the Lord's response is. When he says there's nothing impossible that they're going to be able to do, he's saying, not really, because I am over in authority over them, and I can take care of this situation very easily. So this text, the last thing that I wanted to mention, and this actually leads into where we're going this morning, is that I believe this text can tell us God's will for our lives. This text tells me God's will for my life, and I believe this text will tell you God's will for your life. And that's the title for us this morning, is that so that we can find what is God's will for our life. I think it's right here in Genesis chapter 11, which honestly is a pretty bold title for a sermon from a stranger, from a guy coming to town from Charleston, South Carolina, to be with you guys. I just met a few of y'all this morning, but I don't know your backstory. I don't know your situation. And so you might be saying, Josh, you're going to take a text like Genesis chapter 11 where they're trying to build a tower, and you're going to come in here and pretend that you actually know God's will for my life. And the answer is, yeah, I think, I, I think we can get at what's God's will for our lives. And the reason I can say that is, Louis Giglio, who's a pastor in Atlanta, a long time ago I heard him share a, a message, and the title of his message was Finding God's Will uh, for My Life. And he says, I want to speak about God's will for your life, but there's two things we got to clear up before we get started. The first thing is, is that God's will is not lost so that you have to find it. It's really clear in the pages of the scripture, which I think is right here in Genesis chapter 11. And he said, the second thing we need to clear up is that it's not your life. It's really God's life. And so really, we don't need to go find God's will for your life. We just need to figure out what God's will is. And then once we figure out what God's will is, then we can jump on. And really, we can figure out what God's will is by just looking at what he's doing. And so once we figure out what he's doing, then we just said, okay, now for the rest of my life, that's what I'm going to do. So that's what we're going to do this morning. And I think it's right here in Genesis chapter 11. So if you go back to verse four, and I think we're going to be able to put that on the screen. So you'll read this. And this is the main text that we're camping out here to be able to pull from this morning. The people said, come, let us build ourselves a city and a tower with his top in the heavens, and let us make a name for ourselves, lest we dis be dispersed over the face of the whole earth. Now, I don't know, when you read scripture, and if you feel like a, your personal time with the Lord, and we'll talk a little bit about this morning, but when you open up the Bible, or you come in church and you listen to a sermon, you've probably had these moments where you feel like this passage is speaking directly to me. Anybody ever have that moment before? I'm going to tell you, with verse 4, I can say this as my testimony, and I believe, just knowing that you're probably a lot like me, that this could be your testimony as well, is verse chapter 4, is, I mean, verse 4 in chapter 11 is speaking directly to you. Because I believe that every person's default is the three things that we see in this particular verse. Every person's default is that we're trying to build a city or a kingdom, and I'm going to get into that in a minute, a kingdom for myself, for yourself. Every person's default is to make much of his or her personal name. And every person's default is to stay with what seems comfortable and secure, to avoid risk 
and to avoid the path of least resistance or to go toward the path of least resistance. But I believe, looking at verse 4, the way we can figure out what is God is doing and what is God's will for our lives is that we need to do the opposite of what our natural default is that we've inherited from Adam and Eve in the garden. And that is that God's will for his people, we're going to be able to see this in what God is doing and what he's calling us to do, is to build his kingdom, to make much of his name, and then to cover the face of all the earth. So let's dive in. God's will for his people has always been to build his kingdom. Genesis 10.8 says that Nimrod was the first on earth to be a mighty man. The beginning of his kingdom was Babel in the land of Shinar. So we see here in chapter 10 that Nimrod was a king over a kingdom that started out with Babel in present day Iraq. The word kingdom is mentioned over 300 times in the scriptures. The Bible, from the beginning to end, is the story of God building his kingdom with and through his people. We see this in the very beginning. So even in Exodus, which is the second book of the Bible, in Exodus 19.6, God says, You shall be to me a kingdom of priests and a holy nation. And then you get into the early on, the first uh, words of Jesus in his ministry when he hits the scene in Mark chapter 1 verse 15 is the time is fulfilled and the kingdom of God is at hand. And then you get all the way to the end of the Bible in Revelation 11 verse 15, the kingdom of the world has become the kingdom of our Lord Jesus Christ. God is building his kingdom by the kingdom of this world slowly and eventually and one day completely becoming the kingdom of our Lord and of his Christ. So this is what God is doing. And I believe there's three ways in which we can join God in building his kingdom. Three simple ways. The first one is we need to enter his kingdom. First, you must personally enter the kingdom in order to build the kingdom. And so I want to share something with you. Got a couple of diagrams I want to put up on the screen that you're probably very familiar with, but I just don't want to assume that everybody in a room this size is already in the kingdom. And so I want to share with you how you can join God's kingdom. And so if you look at this next slide, this is a this is what happened in the Garden of Eden. So this happened in Genesis chapter 3. So before, in Genesis chapter 1 and Genesis chapter 2, there was this perfect harmony and relationship between God and man. But in Genesis chapter 3, when Adam and Eve rebelled and went their own way and said no thanks to God as far as following his lordship, there was this vacuum, there was this chasm, there was this separation between God and man. And ever since Genesis chapter 3, all the way up until present day, every other religion in the world has people trying to work their way back to God or work their way back to Nirvana or work their way back to some kind of better reincarnation. The Bible is the only religion that says you don't have to, and these errors would represent maybe reading your Bible or trying to obey the Ten Commandments or showing up at church or you know uh, whatever you can think of as the good things that we would try to do to get to God. Isaiah 64, 6 says that even our most righteous works are like filthy rags to him. So Christianity is the only religion where this happens. God gets off his throne, go to the next slide please, and comes down to man. 
And so the death that we deserve, Romans 3.23 says, for all have sinned and fallen short of the glory of God. And Romans 6.23 says, for the wages of sin is death. What we earn for our sin, and this is the promise that God gave Adam and Eve, and this is what happened when they sinned against him. They died psychologically, they died socially, they died spiritually, and they started dying physically. You see all of these things happening in Genesis chapter 3. And so what Jesus did, he came and lived a perfect life in our place so that the righteousness which we don't have, we can inherit or can be credited to us from him. And then he died a death in our place. He took the wages of our sin on him so that now we can have a relationship with him. The very beginning of Romans 6.23 says, For the wages of sin is death. The very end says, But the gift of God is eternal life through Jesus Christ our Lord. So this is the way that we enter the kingdom. It's not by what we do, but it's by <coughs> believing and accepting what Jesus has done for us. Now, I believe that in the South... Uh, really all over the world, but particularly I find this a lot in the South when I'm sharing this message of the gospel with people, is there's really two different extremes of what people think it means to become a Christian or to be a Christian. And one extreme is I'll try to work as hard as I can and hope that my good works outweigh my bad works, or hopefully like my favorite teacher in school, hopefully God grades on a curve, <laughs> and as long as I'm better than most, maybe I'll have a chance to get in. Isaiah 64, 6, even our most righteous works are like filthy rags to God. So that's one extreme that doesn't work. The other extreme in the South is, well, John 3, 16 says, For God so loved the world that whosoever believes in him should not perish but have everlasting life. If I just intellectually believe that Jesus died on the cross for my sins, then I can get in. But it's really clear from the scriptures that even the devil believes. Like, an intellectual belief won't get you in. If anything, an intellectual belief gives you more greater condemnation because now you know the truth but you haven't accepted it. So the only way in which you can enter into the kingdom is through faith. Ephesians 2, 8, 9 says, For it is by grace you've been saved through faith. But it's a faith that trusts God with your life. It's kind of, for instance, that there's two different kind of faiths that each one of y'all have in this room right now. The faith that you have in the chair sitting beside the chair beside you or the chair that's in front of you that's empty, that you all believe that if you sat in that chair, it will hold you up. But that's different than the faith that you have in the chair that you sat in. You've actually entrusted your life to that chair. And that's what God is asking us to do in order to be to enter the kingdom, or mandating for us to do to enter the kingdom. And here's a diagram I like to share with people to give you an idea of what that looks like. So again, the stranger from out of town is coming in. You don't know me. How do you know? Well, I'm just going to go ahead and take a guess. This is your life right here. <laughs> you know, this is my life, and this is probably your life to some degree. So uh, if you kind of divide your life up into eight different sections, you might get something like this. Uh, for the most part, everybody has a family, an extended family, immediate family. Uh, just below that on the right-hand side, uh, you have school, many of us have school or education, or maybe you have kids that are going to school, or maybe right now you're 60 years old and you're still paying off your student loans, unless Biden's forgiven it, which I hopefully has. Uh, then you have friends, you have your job, you have your hobbies, you have your significant other, uh, you have your future. And so all of these are pretty tangible. The future is kind of intangible, but I believe that's a significant part of our lives. 
In fact, that even might be the most significant part as far as what we try to have ownership or control over because we're always dreaming, we're always thinking about the next stage, and we're always trying to strategize and see where we might be going for our next day, our next week, or our next year. And then for each one of us, especially those of us that are here, there's a component of faith, there's a component of religion, and I can cross up there to represent that. You might say, if I ask you the question, is this person a Christian, you would say, well, Probably so. I mean, there's no cheating on your wives or uh, robbing banks, and uh, Jesus is a part of this person's life. But really, you can't say for sure that this person's a Christian unless this person's life looks like this. Jesus says in Luke 9, 24, and there's a red cross, as you can see, that entered the center of the diagram. He says in Luke 9, 24, if anyone wants to save his life, he first must lose it. But whoever loses his life for my sake will save it. True faith is the kind of faith that you have in the chair that you're sitting in, where you say, God, I'm coming to you, surrendering my life to you. Doesn't mean you're going to be perfect. I'm talking to a guy uh, yesterday on a Zoom call, doing some premarital counseling with him, and one of the things I've been trying to uh, get him to understand, he's a really good guy. Like, I really love this guy, but he's not quite there and making this step of faith where he's going to surrender his life to the Lord. And so one of the things that he's dealing with is he's trying to get his act together. He wants to be perfect, and he wants to make sure he can do this, that he can make sure he can keep this commitment before he actually gives his life to Christ. You can't do it on your own. The only way you can do it on your own is to surrender your life to God, Then he comes in and lives within you, and he gives you the power to live within his kingdom and to do kingdomly-type things. So the most important thing you can do in order to build the kingdom is to actually enter the kingdom. The second thing is to establish the kingdom. So a tall tower has to have a deep foundation, and it's the same with the kingdom. In order to be a kingdom builder, every person who enters must be established. And so put up the next slide, please. Many of you are familiar with this. I was talking to some guys earlier before the service. So the Navigator's great ministry they put this out many years ago. It's the will diagram. And I like to share this with people when they're asking me, what do I do after I become a Christian? How do I grow in my relationship with Christ? So I don't have a lot of time to get into the theology of this, but the way in which you become a Christian is you receive God's grace through faith. And what God has given us is he's given us, now when you become a Christian, you get all the grace you need. But he's given us what the Bible, I believe, refers to as means of grace. And so you have four spokes to this wheel. You have the word and prayer. That represents, that's a vertical spoke, two spokes vertically positioned. It represents or uh, indicates your relationship with God. And then you have two horizontal spokes, and that is witnessing and fellowship. And this is your relationship with others. And each one of these are means of grace. This is where, not how you get more grace, but how you experience God's grace in your life. And like 99.9% of the time, if someone comes to me and says, you know, I'm a Christian, but I'm just not really feeling God's joy in my life. I'm really struggling and dealing with temptation. 99% of the time, it's because they're not engaged in one of these aspects of means of grace. To be able to experience God by walking Him day, with him daily in his word Meet, approaching the throne of his grace as Ephesians, I mean, as Hebrews 4 talks about in prayer or as Ephesians 4 speaks about 
to be able to experience in God's grace and giving God's grace to one another and fellowship and then just sharing the gospel and having God's grace work through you to others. And so the thing in which uh, we can do uh, to establish God's kingdom is first be established in these means of grace ourselves and then start helping people grow in their relationship with God through them spending time in the Word, them spending time in prayer, and training them to share their faith and share with them the importance of community. And so you enter his kingdom, then you get established in his kingdom, and you help establish others. And then the last thing is to build his kingdom is to expand his kingdom. God's kingdom is expansion. It's constantly all the move. As a revelation uh, we just looked at said that eventually the kingdom of the world will become his kingdom. And Romans 20 speaks about that he, this is God is destroying Satan and ushering the kingdom through the church through each one of us. And so this is how he is ushering the kingdom in. He's doing it through us and he's calling us to be a part of this. He's calling us to expand his kingdom into the places where we live and learn and work and play. So questions that I ask myself and questions that we need to be asking ourselves is such as this. How, what would it look like to put your family increasingly under the rule and reign of Jesus? What would it look to build his kingdom, to expand his kingdom in your sphere of influence, particularly in your family? One of the things that we do as a family is I know that many of you guys, I'm sure, do this as well with your kids. Is just about every night uh, for most of my kids' lives, we've done nightly devotions, just trying to reorientate our family back to what it means to follow Jesus. For some of us in our family, this is a daily battle, and this is constantly pursuing reconciliation and forgiveness with one another. This is where we're taking a family that may be drifting outside of the authority and under the leadership of the kingdom of God and bring it back into the reign and rule of Jesus. These are just simple things you can do with your family. Or what about your school? This particular school that we're living in, is this the school where y'all have MCA? Yeah. Okay, so that is awesome. And the school that we met in, that's where we had MCA and still do to this very day. So what about your school? Whether it's middle school, high school, or your college campus, how do you expand the kingdom there? So you guys are meeting at FCA uh, during the week with students and athletes and coaches and teachers. We're doing the same thing on Tuesday morning at Philip Simmons Middle School and High School. And then I meet with coaches on Thursday morning every week. It's the highlight of my week, talking to those guys about how to coach biblically. So how do you bring your school and where you learn under the rule and reign of Christ? And then also about the place where you work. So how do you... Think about where you work and expand the kingdom there. Now, of course, you could be sharing the gospel with people there, but how do you bring the place where you work under the rule and reign of Jesus Christ? My brother and I was talking one day. He used to be a construction loan officer at BB&T, and we were just having fun, and we said, I wonder what it would be like if you, like if God ran BB&T. Like, what if God was a church? And, like, since you work there and you're giving out construction loans, what if you ran BB&T like the kingdom of God? What would that look like? And we started digging in the scriptures, and we came across the year of Jubilee and uh, the Old Testament and found out that every 50 years you're supposed to cancel people's debt and return the property back to them. 
He said, I think I'd be fired in a minute's notice. <laughs> but anyway, that's pretty funny. Like, you're a farmer. What would you do? Well, you give seven years. After every seven years, you give the land some rest. So in your occupation, in your career, what would it be like to usher in the kingdom of God by expanding the kingdom of God into the place where you work? So that's number one, to build his kingdom. Number two is to make much of his name. Right now, back in Charleston, we're preaching through Exodus, and this morning, Pharaoh is uh, chasing the Israelites as they flee Egypt. That's what our lead pastor is preaching on this morning. Romans 9, 17 says, For the scripture says to Pharaoh, For this very purpose I have raised you up, that I might show my power in you, and that my name might be proclaimed in all the earth. So already we see in Genesis, and we also see in Exodus, and all the way to the last book of the Old Testament in Malachi chapter 1, verse 11, where it says, For from the rising of the sun to its setting, my name will be great among the nations. So these guys at the Tower of Babel were trying to make a name for themselves, but God says, Ah, if you're going to build my kingdom, if you're going to do my will, you're going to build my kingdom, and you're going to make a name for me. And I believe there's three reasons God is making much of his name. The first reason is for him, because he's the only one in the whole cosmos and outside of it that deserves name recognition. Like it's arrogant for you, for me to tell you, hey, you need to give me name recognition because I don't deserve it. But God is proper and it's right to give him name recognition. So one of the reasons is for him. Another reason to make much of his name is for me because I'm such a failure at trying to find satisfaction and making much of me. But when I'm making much of God, that's when I'm most fulfilled. And then also for others, because it's only by his name that men and women can come into a relationship with God. Acts 4.12 says, there's no other name but heaven given among men by which we must be saved. So if you want to know God's will for your life, it's to do what God is already doing and making much of his name. And you can do this privately and you can do this publicly. Like every day, like I'm going through a period right now in my life to where um, I hit a semi truck 30 years ago, and that's why you might not see it, but I got scars on my face and I had major back surgery back in 1994. And so every day my back's an issue. Like I'm always stretching, I'm always trying to drink a lot of water. And, uh, so I'm praying constantly in Jesus' name, according to his authority, character, and calls. That's what name means in the, in the Greek for healing. And that's making much of his name when I'm praying for healing. But lately I've been thinking, you know what? I pray when I'm in pain, but I don't necessarily praise when I'm feeling good. And so I was coming back from the gym the other day, such two nights ago, and I was walking back. And I said, you know what? I want to have an attitude of praise so that I can make much of God's name even in the moments when I'm feeling good. So I literally, I was doing this. I was walking back and every step that I would take, thank you, Lord, thank you, thank you, Lord, because I was feeling good. Could you imagine if you took, if you thank God for every single step you would take, that's making much of God's name in your life. So we can do this privately. We can also do this publicly as well. The more you make much of God's name in private, the more you'll do it in public. Everyone is called to tell others about their faith in Christ. If you're a Christian, you have a story to tell to make much of God's name to others. The presentation I just shared earlier you can actually write it out on a napkin. I don't know how many times I've written that out on a napkin to someone across the table to share them how share with them how they can know Christ. And in doing so, you make much of his name. 
If you haven't been baptized, Pastor Jeremy's going to get up in a minute and talk about that. You can make much of God's name next Sunday. So I've got this picture. We actually had baptisms last Sunday. Really, really cool story. I'll just tell you briefly. Uh, Bria is the mom, and she's baptizing her daughter. Her daughter, Sam, became a Christian December the 31st, 2022. They were unchurched, not coming to church. They got an invite from someone in the neighborhood. The, um, the Sam started showing up, showing up the youth group, got involved in a Bible study. We call them grow groups. She came to Christ December the 31st. I was talking to her mom. Mom said, I'm not ready. Don't really know if I want to take that step. The mom, Bria, shows up to the grow group, which her kid is in early, and the kid had already become a Christian, Sam. But there, Bria hears a gospel presentation, and it's actually a crazy gospel presentation. The leader of the group actually brought a plank and made a cross, and she said, just like I showed up there on the diagram, to get to God, you gotta walk on the cross, you gotta walk on the cross like this. Who wants to take that step? And she was talking to all the kids, and all the kids walked on the cross, and when it was done, Bria's sitting there watching it, she says, well, what about me? I want to walk over. And so she did, physically, right then, on February the 1st, just last month, she walked over and she accepted Christ, and then she got baptized this last Sunday and baptized her daughter. That's making much of God's name. You have the opportunity, if you haven't been baptized, to do that next Sunday. And then Easter is in three weeks. And inviting someone to church is a very simple way. It's a very normal culture way of making much of God's name. So last, and I, I need to move quickly in this last point, and we'll be done. This is the exact opposite of what these guys were doing. But this is what God has called us to do because this is what he's doing, is to cover the face of all the earth. So God told Adam and Eve in Genesis 1.28 and Noah and his sons in Genesis 9.1 to be fruitful and multiply and fill the earth. But Nimrod and his crowd said no. They said they were going to build their kingdom and promote their agenda and just stay home. But Jesus came to build his kingdom by making much of God's name and filling the earth with his people. And that's why you see in Matthew 28, the end of the book of Matthew, he says, to his disciples, go make disciples of all nations. I've trained you, now you go train others. You go establish others in the faith. It says Matthew 28, God has been covering the earth with his people. For instance, got a few stats here I'm just going to run through. This is so encouraging about what God is already doing. In the year 100, 100 years after Christ, for every 360 persons, one was a Christian. In the year 1500, so you fast forward 1400 years, the gap had shrunk, shrunk to out of every 85 persons, one was a Christian. So early it was 360 to one, now it's 85 people to one, and then today for every seven persons worldwide, one is an active believer. So God is covering the face of the earth with his people. Worldwide Christianity is growing at a rate of 115,000 new believers every day. That's 1.3 people are entering the kingdom every second. 28,000 people come to Christ in China every day. That's 19 every minute. That's a growth rate five times the general population. From 1960 to 2010, the number of Muslims who have become Jesus followers have grown from 200,000 to 10 million people. After 70 years, and I think this is a few years ago, so probably I should say 80 years of Soviet Union oppression, and I don't know exactly what it's like since Putin's taken back the reins. Hope you guys back it's rectified soon. 
But there are 100 million Christians in the former Soviet Union today, which is five times the members of the Communist Party at the height of its popularity. In 1900, Africa had 10 million Christians. That's 10% of the continent's population. In 2000, Africa had 360 million Christians, 50% of the continent's population. Over the last 100 years, we have seen the gospel go from Europe to America and now to what is called the Global South, which consists of Latin America, Africa, and Asia. In 1900, 71% of Christians lived in Europe and North America, and in 1900, 29% lived in the Global South. So most people were living in, as far as Christians in Europe and North America. 71% in Europe and North America, 29% in the Global South. 1900. Today, 22% of Christians live in Europe and North America, and 78% of Christians live in the global south. Over the last 10 years, 30 million people have received Jesus worldwide. 10 million of these are in North America and Europe. The rest, 290, are in the global south. So God is covering the face of the earth. It started the Tower of Babel, and God continues to build his kingdom, covering the earth with his people who make much of his name. They started out with 70 people groups, and right now, it's not over. We still have work to do, even with what God has already done, because even though it started out with 70 people groups, now we have 17,400 people groups, and of those 17,400, 7,000 are unreached. And what that means is that less than 2% of the population are active believers. So they don't have enough believers to actually evangelize their own people groups. So the question for us as we end this morning is what do I do? How do I get a, how do I become a part of God's mission to cover the face of the earth? Because there's a lot out there that still needs to be done. 42% of the world still are in a place to where they don't have access to the gospel. And for us here in South Carolina, we can say, okay, I have a job, I have a family, I just can't leave. So God is calling us all to the nations, but not necessarily everybody should physically get up and leave like today. Everyone should go at some level, meaning everyone should play a role and everyone should care. So if you go back to points one and two, everyone can make much of Jesus' name and everyone can build the kingdom where they're at. So for instance, if one person would commit to lead another person to Christ, if you would just commit to lead another person to Christ this year, and then help them learn how to study the Bible, learn how to pray, the importance of community, get them involved in a church, and teach them how to share your faith. Just took one year and did that with one person. At the end of that year, there would be two people. If, they, if both of those two people did it for the next year, there would be four people. Then there would be eight people, and then there would be 16 people. If you follow that form of multiplication, in 33 years, over 8 billion people will be one to Christ. We reach the whole world just that way. So we are called to go to the nations, but we're called to start with where we are right now. So as we end, if you're not a Jesus follower, know that the most satisfied you will ever be is by entering God's kingdom through trust in Christ as Savior and Lord. And you can make that decision today. It's just by faith, trusting him with your life. And if you have any questions, Pastor Jeremy, after the song, he's going to get up and he's going to share how you can learn more about what it means to accept Christ and also about baptisms next Sunday.
if you are a Jesus follower, then I would encourage you to consider one thing, just one thing. I know we talked about it a lot. We covered a lot of ground this morning. But just one thing as you look at Genesis 11, 4 and think, how am I going to follow what God is already doing by doing the opposite of what those guys were doing in verse 4? One thing that you can be doing this week to build God's kingdom where you're at, to privately and publicly make much of God's name, and then cover the face of the earth by being a part of getting the good news of Jesus to the nations and then discipling others to do the same. Let me pray.